Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another edition of Alternative News brought to you by Romina Betsin and Andrew Irving from the Campaign for International Cooperation and Disarmament produced at the community radio station 3CR. Today we will speak about what really happened at Gallipoli, separating the history from the myth. The Anzac legend had been the subject of a lot of debate between historians, but there has been not enough attention given to the highly contested nature of Anzac from the very beginning of its history. Anzac has been a site for intense political debate and social division, as well as a focus of national unity. The Labor movement and working class Australians have been in the front of this debate, refusing to allow the Conservatives to take over its cultural and historical meanings. A little more than a year after the 1913 federal elections, Australians were called to arms as part of the British Empire. As the war deepened and the extent of the slaughter grew, responses of Australians ranged across the patriotic dedication of young men enlisting calls for conscription opposed by a strong anti-conscription movement, food shortage protests, the formation of the Women's Peace Army and efforts of local communities in service organisations. Historians suggest no soldiers could have escaped World War I completely unharmed, even if they returned physically uninjured. The human cost of war is hard to believe. One can only imagine how many returned wounded physically, emotionally and psychologically. Tasmania sent more than 15,000 to war, almost 3,000 of whom would never return. Of the many thousands who return, there is no way of counting their continuing private horrors. The men would have nightmares. There was a lot of alcoholism, a lot of domestic violence as a result of what they'd been through. Launceston-born historian Kirsty Harris, now of the University of Melbourne, has written extensively of how nurses dealt with the casualties of war. Dr. Harris says shell shock was a new psychiatric condition resulting from strain, exhaustion, horrifying unnatural conditions and the the general turmoil of war, including seeing friends killed and injured bodies. Writing in a paper called In the Grey Battalion, Dr. Harris says the noise of the front line often shattered men's nerves and even deafened or maddened them. The physical damage sustained also unprecedented, with advances in warfare generating wounds not seen previously. Permanent facial injuries were the consequence of trench warfare, as men's heads were exposed when they looked up for the enemy from shelter. Chemical weapons not seen previously also appeared on the battlefield in World War I resulting in damaged eyes, noses and lungs. Many hospitals were set up in Tasmania for the wounded soldiers on return. World War I killed and wounded many soldiers and devastated families. 
The First World War was fundamentally a clash between rival European powers for control of colonies and profits. It was a product of the fully modern capitalist economy engaged in brutal industrial slaughter. Veterans returned home distressed by their physical and mental scars. A number of them tragically took their own lives, such as Lance Corporal Harold Candy in 1921. He took his own life most tragically on the night before his wedding. The landing at Gallipoli was an invasion of a Middle East country, modern Turkey, in the service of what was, at the time, the world's largest and most powerful empire. Australian troops at Gallipoli were among almost half a million British, Indian, New Zealand and French colonial troops who landed there. At the time, the Australian troops were celebrated as dying in the service of the empire. This, together with the now quite popular notion that Australian national character was forged in the trenches of Gallipoli, led several organisations and individuals to form a coalition which has its focus on broadening the opportunities to learn from a shared history and to challenge this narrative. Working-class men comprised the bulk of the first Australian Imperial Force, AIF, and the same class and its institutions were also active in shaping the cultural memory of Australia's wartime experience in the decades that followed. Meanwhile, research on political activism, working life, war and memory have built up an increasing activities and contributions of working class and labour movement. Its meanings have altered over time and there has been little attention paid to how those meanings differ among different communities. Labour historians might be able to contribute to recovering a sense of this disturbing history. For those Fortunate enough to survive World War I, many return home broken and damaged. A coalition of historians are supporting a balanced and honest presentation and use of Australian history. Honest history promotes balanced consideration of Australian history by making contesting evidence-based interpretations available to students, teachers, universities, journalists and the public. Some consider such tragic and unsettling stories unnecessary and possibly too distressing for the classroom. But Australia's secondary school students are willing to work with these stories. The Gallipoli campaign was one of the Allies' great disasters in World War I. It was carried out between 25th April 1915 and 9th January 1916 on the Gallipoli Peninsula in the Ottoman Empire. The campaign was thought up by Winston Churchill to end the war early by creating a new war front that the Ottomans could not cope with. On November 25, 1914, Winston Churchill suggested his plan for a new war to the British government's war council. On January 15, 1915, the war council gave its agreement and British troops in Egypt were put on alert. The Central Powers were fighting primarily on two fronts, 
the Western and Eastern Fronts. The Turks had joined the Central Powers in November 1914 and they were seen by Churchill as being the weak underbelly of those who fought against the Allies. By now there was a military import into Britain's plan. It contained 70,000 men from Great Britain, Australia and New Zealand, along with troops from France. The army's input into the Gallipoli campaign was a disaster. It would appear that the senior commanders on the ground believed that their opposition simply was not up to the standards of the British and Anzac troops. The Secretary of the War Council, Sir Maurice Hankey, called the whole affair a gamble based on the belief that the Turks would be an inferior force. The troops that were there were poorly equipped and supplies were poor. The Anzacs landed at Anzac Cove. Here they were faced with steep cliffs which they had to climb to get off the beach. To make matter worse, Anzac Cove was a tiny beach and quickly became very congested. The Turks pushed back the initial Anzac move inland. By May in Hellas, the British had lost 20,000 men out of 70,000. 6,000 had been killed. The medical facilities were completely overwhelmed by the casualties. However, the overall campaign was a disaster of the first order. Over 200,000 Allied casualties occurred with many deaths coming from disease. The number of Turkish deaths is not clear, but it is generally accepted that they were over 200,000. As historian Mark McKenna has pointed out, For decades following 1915, the imperial context of Anzac Day had been fundamental to the rituals and meaning of the 25th April. Newspapers, for example, commonly placed the king's or queen's message on the front page. Today, some still defend the British Empire as a civilizing force that helped bring economic development to colonies like India. In reality, it was a brutal arrangement through which Britain plundered the world based on sheer military terror and bloodshed. During the First World War, British troops based in Egypt, including Australian light horse regiments, invaded the Ottoman provinces in Palestine and Mesopotamia. At the war's conclusion, Britain took control of modern-day Iraq and Jordan, as well as Palestine, while France gained Lebanon and Syria. Promises about establishing an independent Arab state, which Britain made during the war to secure military support against the Ottomans, were simply dropped. When Egypt staged a nationalist rebellion in 1919, Australian troops were used to help crush it. Australian light horse units had been waiting in Egypt to sail for home at the end of the war, but with few other British troops in the country, they were ordered to help re-establish British rule. Australians were sent out to machine-gun crowds of protesters, 
by the time the revolt was crushed in April 1919, over 1,000 Egyptians had been killed, 1,500 jailed, and 57 hanged. After the Second World War, U.S. succeeded Britain as the world's foremost imperial power. While it stepped back from use of direct imperial control, it has proved just as willing to overthrow governments that resist its wishes and which harm the interests of U.S. multinationals. Just as Australia sat under the British umbrella in the First World War, it now works in partnership with U.S. imperialism, joining its imperial adventures from Vietnam to Iraq and Afghanistan. Australia could be a world leader in education, medical research and many other good things, positive things. We would be a good neighbour to our exploited Pacific neighbours. Instead, we use our wealth to invade other countries. We follow US to every war. We should not surrender ourselves to the lie that war is necessary. We give up the future that we claim the Anzacs gave us to power-hungry politicians. A few announcements this week. This year marks the 40th anniversary of 3CR Community Radio and we would like you to join us to celebrate this milestone with a range of activities including a book launch. 3CR officially started broadcasting in July 1976 and at the time was acknowledged as Australia's first community radio station. 40 years later, 3CR is proud of the station's achievements in providing a media outlet for diverse communities and a platform for radical analysis of social and political issues. The book launch, Radio Radical, celebrates 40 years of 3CR and it will be held on Friday the 6th of May, Bell Union Bar, Trades Hall. Also in the coming week we celebrate May Day 2016, the Workers' Week of Celebrating International Unity. The program includes a film night on Tuesday the 26th of April at 7pm at Democritus, 583 High Street, Northcote. On Thursday the 28th, the official wreath laying at 5pm, 8-hour monument, directly opposite the Trades Hall on the other corner of Ligon and Victoria Street. This will be followed by the annual multicultural event, will include speakers and cultural performances. And the big event, of course, on Sunday the 1st, starting with a family festival at 11am outside Trades Hall in Ligon Street, followed by the May Day March at 1pm and May Day Tea and Concert. All are welcome. Come along and celebrate International Workers' Unity. Thank you for listening to Alternative News, brought to you from the community radio station 3CR. I'm Romina Betson. And Andrew Irving. Looking forward to your company again next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.